Welcome to the Living the Dream podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Long time dream to become an author and live abroad. Jennifer has lived in several different countries. Right now, she's in Uzbekistan. Right now, it's late in the U.S., but it's early in the morning for her. Life has not been easy for Jennifer and her family. As she was kidnapped once, her husband was attacked by a suicide bomber, and she almost moved to Yemen to run a newspaper. So we're going to be talking to her about why she wanted to take the plunge and leave the U.S. for good and about her books and any other projects that she's working on. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Curtis. It's a pleasure. Why don't you start off by giving everybody a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. I My early career was actually in the theater. My undergraduate major was was theater and I worked as an actor in Seattle, Washington for several years. And my writing grew out of a frustration with the kind of roles that were available to women, um, the kind of roles that I was being offered. I, as a, as a young woman in my early twenties, I seemed to only ever be cast as young ingenues or prostitutes with the heart of gold. And I wanted to play someone with a brain, an astrophysicist or a paleontologist or a complicated person of some kind, someone who had more interest for me than a young ingenue. And so I began writing as a way of saying the things I wished my characters would say. And at the time, I was like most actors, barely surviving financially, piecing together work from waitressing and temp work and working as a barista, things like that. And almost by pure coincidence, a flyer came through the mail uh, advertising a writing workshop. And I had no money at the time, but I called up the man running the workshop and said, is there any way that you'd let me in? I can't pay this this fee all at once. And he said, well, could you pay $5 a week? And I said, yeah, I could pay $5 a week. He said, just pay me $5 a week until it's paid off and, and you can come. And so that's how it all began. And so I ended up taking writing workshops and then thinking that perhaps I needed a, a more studies in writing. So I went and got an MFA from Sarah Lawrence College in New York and then was finishing that when I realized I have no publications. I don't have a lot of work experience still. I am in my late 20s and I'm going to be waitressing probably again forever um, unless I figure out a, a better way to pay the bills. And so I went to journalism school. I figured that reporters at least got a decent salary and Originally, I went to journalism school thinking that I would become a journalist, which would be a way for me to fund my acting and writing career. But I didn't really realize how all-consuming working as a newspaper journalist was. I loved working as a newspaper journalist. Um, working as a newspaper journalist taught me everything that I know about the world. It taught me how school systems work. It taught me how the 
the healthcare system works. It taught me how municipalities work. A lot of these things I just hadn't really understood before I was covering a bunch of small towns in New Jersey and having to sort all that out. Um, and I loved working at a job at which I was constantly learning. Every single day, it was like being in school out in the world. And I, I loved that about it, but I missed being in the theater and I had no time to do any creative writing. So eventually I moved back to the city and got a job in magazines so I could perform in small theaters in the evening. Um, and in 2006, my life changed dramatically when I had an offer to move to Yemen and run a newspaper. Actually, the original offer, the original offer came from a high school friend who wrote to me and said, how would you like to come train journalists in Yemen? And I said, I can't just run away from Manhattan and train journalists in Yemen. I, I have a good job. I've got healthcare. I've, I've got a rent stabilized apartment, um, but I have three weeks vacation left. I could come to Yemen and, and do a three week training for the journalists there if you think that would be useful. And my friend spoke to the Yemeni man running the newspaper who said, I'd love for you to come train my journalists at the newspaper for three weeks. If that's all you can spare, then come over. I'd never been to the Middle East before. I'd, I'd I didn't speak Arabic. I'd, I'd never been to that part of the world and I knew very little about it. Um, I'd always wanted to live abroad, but I had these fantasies that were based on the lives of Henry Miller and Anais Nin and these people who had glamorous lives in Paris and Rome. I hadn't actually considered Yemen, but I thought, surely this will give me something interesting to write about. <laughs> so I bought a book called Learn Arabic in 10 Minutes a Day and worked on that on the A train in Manhattan. And learned a bit of Arabic, enough to be able to argue with taxi drivers, which is critical in Yemen. Got on a plane, moved to, went to Yemen, spent three weeks training the journalists and the editor, the, the publisher of the newspaper at the end of those three weeks said, I love what you're doing with my staff. Would you be willing to stay on and run the newspaper for a year? Now those three years, I mean, those three weeks had been the most exciting three weeks of my life thus far. My reporters, my Yemeni reporters were fascinating people. They were ambitious, they were curious, they were intelligent, they were resourceful, and they taught me so much about Yemen and about their culture. And I was learning a lot more than they were <laughs> just being in their presence. And I, could teach them about journalism because there wasn't training available to them. And so I felt that I was useful in a way that I had never been useful in New York. Anyone could have done, any journalist could have done my job in New York, but there was no one else in Yemen helping these reporters be the kind of journalists they wanted to be. And so while I originally turned down the job because it offered so little money, I wasn't sure I could survive and I was paying off student loans. I went back to Manhattan and went back to the same gray office I'd been in for five years, which is the longest I'd worked anywhere, and thought, I need to do something different with my life. And Yemen wasn't in my plans, but Yemen is what happened to me. And I'd be a fool to turn down this opportunity for learning, for growth, for doing something 
perhaps meaningful. Um, and if it's all a disaster, I could perhaps write a book about it. So I got back on a plane, moved back to Yemen, gave up my apartment in New York and ran a newspaper for a year, which was the best decision I ever made. Um, that experience gave me the material for my first book, which was a memoir about my time running the newspaper. And at the end of that first year, I met my husband or the man who had become my husband and ended up staying in Yemen for three more years. My second book was inspired by what happened to me when I was kidnapped in Yemen. And, um, and that's how my career got off to a start. So I'm, I'm now mostly a novelist, but I may have other memoirs up my sleeve. I do some essay writing. I review books, I teach writing, I mentor younger writer, writers, not necessarily younger, I mentor all writers, I shouldn't say that. I currently am in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, where I'm watching the sunrise, and I'm the parent of an 11-year-old girl. So I'm sorry if that was too long for an intro, but... <laughs> no, that was perfect. Let's talk about, because I figured when you said Yemen, this is where you got kidnapped and maybe even when your husband got attacked by the suicide bomber. Talk about being kidnapped. How did that happen? What was that like? And also talk about your husband being attacked by a suicide bomber. And did he make a full recovery? Was he injured? Tell us about it. Sure. I first, I want to start off by saying that Yemen is the most hospitable and friendliest country I've ever been to in my entire life. And I don't want to color Yemenis as terrorists because the vast majority of them are not. And my experience overall in Yemen, before I get to the kidnapping, was that everywhere I went in Yemen, people greeted me on the street and they would say, welcome to Yemen, we love you. And they would say that the first time they met me, they'd say, we love you, we're so happy you're here. You know, they would say, will you come to lunch Friday? And then they'd want me to come to lunch every week. So I actually, I felt very comfortable in Yemen. I felt very welcomed. I loved the culture of hospitality. I loved that total strangers would invite me to tea all the time. This was not something I had experienced before. And I loved that I lived alone in a house in the old city and my neighbors across the street would just knock on my door and invite me over, not knowing who I was. And it was really lovely to be in that kind of community. And so after three years of living there, three and a half years by the time I got kidnapped, I felt very at ease living in Sana'a, Yemen. I had many friends there. I went hiking every single week with a group of Yemeni hikers. And I had just started hiking with a group of some foreign women who invited me to join them. And on our second outing, so just as a little background, my husband at the time was the British ambassador to Yemen. He had 10 bodyguards without whom he was not allowed to leave the house. And once we were officially together, I had one bodyguard, which tells you something about my relative importance to, to him, um, at least in the eyes of the British government. I This bodyguard came with me every time I went hiking, which took some getting used to. And that day we set off to meet the other women. And there were five of us from five different countries. There was a Romanian woman, a Norwegian, a British woman, a French woman, a British woman and me. And we 
set off walking. We weren't that far from Sanaa. We hadn't crossed a checkpoint because at the time we were told we were not allowed to cross checkpoints. There were checkpoints all over the country. And there was some talk about uh, the security situation worsening. And so we were told to stay relatively close to the city. So we thought we were in a safe area. The bodyguards had wrecked the area and told us it was okay. So we set off hiking and at the time I was six and a half months pregnant with my daughter and wearing my husband's clothes, which were very loose on me. So you couldn't necessarily tell that from looking at me, but this becomes important background for this story. Um, so we'd been walking about two and a half hours. We had stopped to have a picnic and we were just finishing up when I heard our guards, they had a few guards from the French oil company Total, uh, who were not trained, who didn't, who lacked the military training that our guards had. Our guards were all Yemeni, um, which is really important because they understand the culture and how things work and how negotiations happen. Um, but they were trained by the British military and the other guards were from the French oil company. And they were all lunching together above us and we heard a bunch of shouting which is not alarming in yemen because a lot of people just speak loudly and so you can think people are shouting but they're not they're really saying hey how's your mom how are things and so we assumed that our guards were just greeting a group of of people a group of strangers and sharing their food with them because that's the yemeni way you share your food with whoever passes by while you're eating and then i heard I'm not sure if this is possible for me to have heard, but in my memory, I heard a rifle being cocked and looked up and saw an AK-47 pointed at me, at us. And so we all looked up around the same time, scrambled to our feet. We figured we must be trespassing. We want to get off the land as fast as possible. And as we were starting to walk away, my bodyguard called me back and I was the only one of our group who spoke any Arabic. And he said, you need to come back and talk to this guy. And it's counterintuitive to walk towards a man pointing an AK-47 at you. But we were trained to do everything our bodyguard told us to do without question, because they generally knew how to assess the security situation much better than we did. So I followed his instructions and I walked towards this man who turned out to be the sheikh, the tribal leader in the local area. And he was with seven other men. There were around eight of them who were surrounding us at this time. And they all had AK-47. So they were, one of them was positioned on a little hill above us. And I went over to the sheikh and I said, Salaam Alaikum, which is I come in peace. And normally that greeting is returned with Alaikum Salaam. And if someone doesn't Alaikum Salaam you back, it can mean they wish you harm. And so when this sheikh did not Alaikum Salaam me back, my bodyguard became nervous. And he said, why aren't you returning her greeting? This is really rude. This is not how we treat women. This is not how we treat pregnant women. And the sheikh, he didn't seem to see me. I looked in his eyes and it was like he wasn't there. It was like he didn't see me. I wonder if he had mental health issues. He just didn't seem to be present. He couldn't hear what I was saying. And, and that was frightening to me because I thought, this man doesn't see me as a human being. Um, I am not real to him. 
and I've never felt that way before. And I had tried to say, you know, we're your friends, we don't want a problem. Um, and he started arguing with my guard. And while they were arguing, I slipped away to rejoin the other women who were kind of clustered together. And we were standing there while the bodyguards were talking and I thought, I have got to let my husband know. And I lost my phone in the conversation with the Sheikh. And fortunately, the, the young Romanian woman had a phone and I borrowed her phone and I'd memorized my husband's mobile number. But even as I dialed it, I thought, there's no way he's going to answer. He would be in the embassy that time of day and they weren't allowed to take mobile phones into the embassy for security reasons. They had to leave them in little boxes outside. And he never answered the phone when I called him during the day. And I didn't remember the number of the embassy's landline. So I called the mobile and miraculously he answered because by pure coincidence, he'd been having a meeting in our home in Sana'a and with some security forces from Yemen. So it, I could not have timed that emergency call better. And I was on the verge of panic. And when I called and I said, we're in trouble. We're surrounded by men with guns. It was as if I'd called to read him the weather report. He didn't even take a moment to breathe. He said, okay, do you have a satellite phone with you? Is Muhammad with you? How far are you from the road? You know, utterly, he's trained to deal with situations like this, not with his wife, but but he's very good at being calm in an emergency. And so I handed off the phone to my bodyguard and stayed talking to the other women while the guards tried to negotiate our release. And it was around this time I noticed that I was starting to experience contractions. And I thought stress can bring on premature labor. And this is definitely the most stressful experience I've ever had. And I worried that I would give birth to my daughter prematurely hours from medical care in a country that um, had very high maternal mortality to begin with and, and was probably not equipped to deal with a very premature infant. And I thought, if I continue to freak out, I'm going to lose her. And if we survive this experience and I lose her because I am stressed out, because I am panicking, the only person to blame for her death will be me. So I need to calm down. I need to find a way not to be stressed out in this situation. And the only thing I could think of, because I had just started doing yoga during pregnancy, I resisted yoga for a long time because I'm not good at sitting still. Um, but I thought, well, I'll try that, that yoga breathing that they've taught me that I was never clear on the use for. So I just did that and created my own little mantra for my daughter and said, stay in, stay in, stay in. It is not safe for you out here. You need to stay in and just kept doing that. And the other women were incredible. Not one of them panicked, not one of them freaked out. And they were protective of me because I was pregnant. So they would, one of them would put her hand on my shoulder and they tried to make jokes. And I could not have been kidnapped with a better group of women. They were far calmer than I was. And their presence helped me to calm down. And 
we were there for the rest of the day while negotiations went on and and at various points the kidnappers would say they could let us go and then change their minds and then they'd try to hurt us and toward this house and we'd walk very slowly because we didn't want to be inside and there were various negotiations with the Yemeni government about whether they'd be willing to give them something in return for us but of course our countries don't pay ransoms so that was not an option and for good reason there you don't want kidnappers to make a business of it so you don't want to pay ransoms because that will just increase kidnapping um, but when you are kidnapped you start to have different feelings about that but anyway so we were we basically spent the day waiting and watching you know the, the fights and and waiting for something terrible to happen at one point the french guards were ready to draw weapons and you just do not ever be the first person to draw a weapon in yemen if some if you draw a weapon there's going to be a shootout and people will die and our guards knew that you know they were armed to the teeth but they did not draw their weapon unless they absolutely were forced to um and my guard was amazing saved my life that day by negotiating with them and eventually at the end of the day um they let us go and we walked as fast as we could afraid they would change their mind once more and in the meantime um my husband had sent his armored cars and all his bodyguards towards us but they couldn't armored cars weigh a ton so they can't get off the road so the french had sent a pickup truck to come get us and we climbed in the we we walked for about an hour maybe half an hour maybe an hour down towards the road and then the truck met us and we climbed in the back and it ferried us to the road and all the way you know my husband couldn't be there because all the guards were with me <laughs> so he couldn't leave the house um but they eventually got us home safely and my husband again when i got back seemed incredibly calm and i said weren't you worried and he said worried i didn't have time to be worried i had to get you out and you know the head of his bodyguards on the other hand was in floods of tears um having just seen perhaps his entire career go down the tube if he'd lost me but but it all worked out so so i was rescued and then so that's that experience and my husband's kidnapping happened a little while later that year so i that kidnapping happened in August of 2009. My daughter was born in November 2009. And then 2010, in the spring, in April, my husband was on his way to work in an armored car. And they take different routes to work every day so that their route doesn't become predictable to anyone who might want to target them. Um, but my husband's car was targeted uh, diplomats in some countries can be easy to target because they have diplomatic plates on their cars which he did and there was some debate over whether this was wise to identify yourself if you were a target which my husband clearly was um, so a suicide bomber threw himself on my husband's car and blew himself up in an explosion that was strong enough to land the suicide bomber's head on top of a seven-story building nearby and the car was 
covered with body parts, but it was an armored car, thank goodness. If it had not been armored, my husband would not be with me today. But because it was, he survived and his driver was incredible um, because driving, continuing to drive after someone's blown himself up on your car and your windshield's covered with body parts is a challenge. And so he got my husband to the embassy and he immediately went into, again, work mode, trying to keep his staff safe, locking down the embassy. I had been at home when this happened with the baby and the guards, all, the guards who were left at the house had come rushing out and said, you need to get in the house. And I said, why? What's the mishkala, the problem? And they were like, oh, no mishkala, just get in the house. And I thought, clearly there's a mishkala and no one wants to tell me what it is. Um, and I became really nervous, but it was a while before I could get anyone on the phone. And finally got my husband on the phone to tell me um, what had happened. And thankfully I got his bodyguard on the phone and he put me right on the phone with my husband because he knew if he told me my husband was attacked by a suicide bomber, I'd have those few seconds where I thought he was dead. And I think he wanted to spare me that by having my husband tell me about it himself so that I would know because I was on the phone with him <laughs> that he'd survived the bombing. So, I mean, they did send people out, uh, therapists to make sure we were okay after that, to make sure he was okay after that. But it was not long after that, that my daughter and I were evacuated, which seems to keep happening to us, <laughs> um, which is something you don't really think about when you hit your life to a diplomat, that there are chances you will be evacuated and end up in a different country from him for months at a time. Um, so we were apart for four months. This time my daughter and I were in Jordan and he finished his post in Yemen. Um, so those, that's those two experiences. Well, I'm a November baby as well, so. Me too. <laughs> ah, so well, me, you and your daughter are all November babies. Yeah. Let's talk about what you, you said you always had a dream to live abroad. What sparked that dream and why do you do you regret the decision i do not regret the decision um at all i i think it was reading that made me want to live abroad i grew up as an obsessive reader um i read everything i my parents had a, a set of kind of encyclopedia called the books of knowledge and they included not just encyclopedia type things like uh, the history of how sugar is made and how molasses is extracted, but fairy tales and stories from the Arabian Nights and all kinds of things. And I, you know, read my way through the books of knowledge. I um, spent a lot of time in the library and I was fascinated by travel, by the act of travel, by being on ships or airplanes or in other countries and living in other cultures. And that curiosity persisted as I grew up. Travel was always appealing to me. I grew up in a, in a very nice small town in Massachusetts, but as a child, there wasn't a single moment I didn't want to leave. And I don't know why that is, except that I, I guess I had the wanderlust early. Um, but I, I always knew that that was not where I was going to spend the rest of my life. And I left home at 15 to go away to school at an alternative school in Vermont, um, where I got to shovel cow poop and work on a farm and um and that was that was an important part of my education um but i think 
I think it was books in the end that made me want to travel. And I think that because I worked as an actor for so long and because I was so resistant to working regular hours and having normal jobs, I never really had very much money. I went to grad school entirely on loans, um, which took me forever to pay back. And then once I was trapped in that student debt, I couldn't figure out how to live abroad. I didn't know how people got jobs abroad. Now I know all the different kinds of jobs you can do abroad, but at the time I just didn't, no one had told me how to apply for jobs abroad or how to make money while living abroad. Um, I just read these, you know, books about expats living abroad who generally came from family money, um, who didn't have to work for a living or who weren't paying off student loans. And so it took me a while. It took Yemen to teach, just to begin teaching me how to live abroad. And I think, you know, I haven't lived in the U.S. since 2006. And it's, a, it's I'm still learning. What's interesting to me is the perspective that I have on the US and how it shaped me as a human is constantly growing. I don't think I'd realized how the US had shaped my assumptions about the world and that these were not assumptions necessarily shared by other people and other cultures. And um, when I moved to Yemen, I was plunged into a culture that I was utterly unfamiliar with and that had a lot to teach me about. I mean, for example, my reporters were horrified to find out that I lived alone and they thought this was the greatest tragedy in the world. And of course, I'd come from New York where most people live alone. And I, I loved it at the time. Um, but my Yemenis would never live alone. They can't imagine wanting to live alone. They're, they're, they, they live very communally. They're attached to their families, to their, to their communities, to their tribes. Um, and I, I loved that. And I think, you know, there's been, I read an essay just recently about, you know, related to the, the pandemic and people's various ways of reacting to the pandemic. And, and one of the problems with, with getting people to take the steps they, they need to take for us to, to get out of the pandemic is they need to think about the common good what is good for the country as a whole? Not just for me, what's good for me and my personal liberty, but what is good for my community? What is good for the country? What is good for the planet? And I think, you know, that kind of individualistic thinking is perhaps not uniquely American, but definitely, you know, in, in the US, we are grow up to think, okay, you can be anything you wanna be, which isn't necessarily true, depending on the circumstances in which you grew up. Uh, and the resources that you have to overcome those. But we are not taught, you know, think about the community and what you can give back and what you can cultivate. How can you cultivate a greater care of the environment around you? And I think that's, you know, that's a problem planet wide. I and mean, that's why we're, we're having kind of the environmental crisis that we're having is we're not thinking about the common good of humanity on, on the earth. And so I think, I don't know, these are a lot of the thoughts that run that run through my mind these days as I think about uh, the situation of the planet and when I think about the U.S. I mean, and the strange thing about living abroad is that I, it's not that, you know, I never feel I fully belong to anywhere we live. We've lived, we spent four years in Bolivia. We spent a lot of time in London. We lived in Jordan. We um, are now in Uzbekistan. And I, I, never, I don't fully belong to any of those countries. But when I go back to the U.S., I no longer feel I fully belong there, except maybe in Manhattan. <laughs> I, 
I think I think Manhattan is still a bit of the home of my heart and uh, a few other places. But I, I feel a bit of a stranger in some ways. And that, that can be a little bit hard. I mean, I think that the in-between space, living between cultures is a very fertile place to live, certainly as a writer. Um, I'm always learning things and examining things from the perspective of different countries and cultures and languages. I mean, learning languages is like learning new ways to think. And so I, I love that. I love that we get to learn languages even though it's tough. And every time I move to a new country, I have trouble. <laughs> the first time I go to a grocery store, I get so overwhelmed, I'm almost in tears, but you get past that. Uh, you have to figure out the labels in the grocery store so that you you know you're buying shampoo and not olive oil. But you, know, you do feel like you're almost a five-year-old forever because you go into a store and you have to point at things and say, bread, uh, chleb, uh, you know, in a way that, you know, it keeps you humble, I suppose. But I mean, there's, there's challenges with being far from the people I love. Every posting, every country has allowed me to connect with more people I love, and I wouldn't trade that for the world. But living abroad and moving as often as we move, which is every three or four years, means that I feel like I live in a permanent state of nostalgia and longing because there's always there are always people I'm missing. It doesn't mean that I don't connect with people where I am, although that's been more difficult in the pandemic because I, we don't leave home all that often at the moment. Um, so it's not a great time to make friends, but I know that everyone else around the world is experiencing similar things. So, Well, let's flip over and talk about your acting career and your journalism career. What was the biggest role or who was the biggest actor you ever worked with? And what was the biggest story you covered when you were journalism? Okay, so, I mean, my acting career was in small theaters. I I don't think my acting career would meet most people's uh, definition of success. But for me, I love the theater. I just like to be working in the theater. I like to be working as an actor. I wish I were living in countries where that was possible. But my favorite mo role that I ever played was the character of Lily and Why We Have a Body by Claire Chafee. It's a wonderful play that premiered in San Francisco um, a long time ago um, and has four really fascinating female characters. And I got to play a lesbian private investigator. And I just love that role. And I, I worked for several years with a lesbian theater community, a lesbian theater company in the Lower East Side. Um, I'm bisexual, but they didn't discriminate against me because of that. They, <laughs> they embraced me. And the theater community that particular theater community is run as a collective. And so I loved that way of doing theater. I loved that everyone got to work on productions and that people took turns directing and producing. And we got to audition and be part of things and that we supported each other. And I thought that was a wonderful way of being in the theater. In Seattle, it was more kind of an individualistic theater career where I would go and audition for parts. And I did, you know, I love Shakespeare. So Shakespeare was one of my favorite playwrights to perform, but it was always 
I felt like actors were, even though all my friends were actors, there was this competitive aspect. And that didn't seem to exist in the Wow Cafe theater community that I belonged to in the, low, in the, the East Village. And so I, I really loved working there and was still working there at the time at which I, I left the US. Working as a journalist, I started off I had an internship up near Boston at the Patriot Ledger for a summer and then got a job working for a daily newspaper in New Jersey. And that was pretty exciting because uh, as I mentioned, that's where I, I learned a lot about how the world works. And I covered, I covered homicides, I covered accidents, I covered healthcare, I covered, we did a, we did a fascinating, series on heroin use in Morris County, New Jersey. And Morris County, New Jersey is this wealthy, largely Republican county that pretended they didn't have a drug problem. Um, but the year, my first year at the newspaper, some 19 people died of heroin use. And we each were assigned uh, one or two people to profile and write the entire lives of these people who had died. And part of the point of this was to say that heroin use touches everyone of every age, every race, every ethnicity. Like this, this is a, a diverse number of people. I mean, people of all ages are dying and this is not being dealt with in this county. And that was really a, a heartbreaking series to work on. And you know, I spent a lot of time with the family of this 19-year-old kid who died of, of heroin use and got to know his dad and his best friend and who kind of let me hang out with them a lot and write about their grief. And that was a, a privilege to, to, to be able to witness. And, and I hoped that um, our series would help other people uh, I guess, resist trying a drug that is so attractive and I understand what was fueling the, the deaths in this community. So that was a fascinating piece to work on also from a health perspective and to learn exactly how heroin works on the body and talk to doctors about that. And we won an award for that, that series. Um, we won a New Jersey Press Award for that and that was great. I became a health reporter and covered health issues. I, I have a special interest in science and health, and I love learning about those things. I then, when I moved to magazines, you know, I moved back to New York so that I could continue performing in the evening because working in a newspaper was exciting, but it didn't allow me to continue to perform. And I felt like only half my heart was alive. And so I moved back to the city and took a job at Playgirl magazine, <laughs> which was highly entertaining and a great deal of fun and gave me a lot to write about. And I worked there uh, for a while. Uh, I eventually was fired from that job for refusing, I guess, to respect authority, <laughs> um, which is a story of its own. Anyway, it was a fun job while it lasted. And then I, I got jobs in other magazines, eventually ending up at The Week, which is where I was working for five years before I moved to Yemen. And that was 
a pretty great place to work. I learned a lot at the week. I started out as their science and health reporter and ended up also writing about film and books and theater and all the things I have a passion for. And that was wonderful. And I think what I eventually realized is that when I came home from a day of writing at my day job, I didn't really have the energy to write the novel I'd always wanted to write or the short stories or my writing career wasn't really going anywhere. And I wonder, perhaps, if that was because I didn't yet have a story to tell. I didn't yet have a story that would mean anything to anyone else that was worth publishing. Um, and it wasn't until Yemen where I thought, this is something I really think the world should know about. I wanted the world to know my Yemeni reporters. I wanted them to know how funny they were and how you know how exciting work at the paper was and i wanted them to see that the yemenis i knew were not terrorists and that's how the media was depicting them at the time and so that's that's how i ended up writing and planned to write a memoir um it had never occurred to me to write about my life but because running a newspaper in yemen gave me such a fascinating experience i i ended up writing a memoir because i wanted to share my experience with my reporters and then uh, the novel my first novel uh came out of my kidnapping so that kidnapping inspired the very first scene of the novel so i'm not giving anything away that novel is called the ambassador's wife and so that novel starts off with the kidnapping of the partner of a diplomat, so familiar context, but the story is entirely fictional. It's just set in a world that I knew a lot about. So what happened when I moved in with my husband, so I'd always lived alone. I had you, never had a cleaning person or anyone in my house. And suddenly when I moved in with Tim, who was an ambassador, there was a, a house cleaner and a cook. And I, I had no idea how to deal with this. And, you know, the Tim would go off to work and leave me alone in the house. And the cook would say, what do you want for lunch? And I'd say, I'll just make myself a sandwich. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to cook anything for me. It's fine. It, it made me really uncomfortable. And finally, my husband said, look, this is their job. We pay them to do this job. This is their job. You have to let them do their job. But it, it was a real shift in my life to live in this really surreal world. And um, it wasn't just the privilege of the world, but also the fact that we in Yemen constantly had visitors and those visitors were fascinating. They included Scotland Yard and hostage negotiators and ministers and we had different people to dinner almost every single night, which can be exhausting, but also pretty interesting. It can also be pretty boring um, if it's like all, you know, oil company executives or something. But there's a there's a point to every dinner. There's a, a reason for doing it, a goal that the diplomat has in working with the Yemenis, something they want to talk over. For example, they might invite human rights activists to dinner so that the human rights activists can say, here are the human rights issues in our country. Here is what we wish the UK would help us with. Um, so that is the point of these dinners, which again, sound very glamorous, but are actually, there's a work reason for doing them. So the, this was all very interesting to me and I was taking lots of notes and keeping a journal, but again, I couldn't write about it because it's all, 
um, classified information that I wasn't allowed to write about. So I thought I can't write another memoir um, or my marriage will be over as well as my husband's career. So, you know, how can I take these fascinating details of this world? And I thought, well, I'll have to write fiction. Um, and I started with the kidnapping and then uh, used some of the details of this weird world I was living in to to write that novel, um, which also involved a fair amount of research. But that novel, I started with the kidnapping and then thought, well, what if I hadn't been released that day? What if I had left a child behind? What if my husband lost his post because he refused um, to leave the country? What if, you know, and, and so that's what if the country was on the verge of civil war? And that series of what if questions is what led me to the plot of that novel. And, you know, my, my novel after that, Exile Music, my most recent novel was inspired by a completely different set of circumstances. But I don't, I don't know if we want to move on to that yet. <laughs> Go ahead, do it. Because my next question was going to be, what, what are your upcoming projects and you know, so tell us about it. Okay, uh, great. So we moved to Bolivia in 2012, and we were pretty excited about this. It was a whole new part of the world for us. We were all learning Spanish, and we moved to La Paz, Bolivia, which is at around 12,000 feet, so very high. The altitude can be a challenge um, to deal with. It, it affects kind of every part of your body. It can make you tired. It can make you breathless. Uh, and it, it takes a long time to adjust to it. Um, but it's spectacularly beautiful and a fascinating place to live. And very soon after we moved to Bolivia, my husband came home from a meeting with the Austrian consul and said, did you know there were about 20,000 Jewish refugees living here during and after World War II? And I hadn't known that. I had read a lot about Jewish refugees in other parts of South America, in Brazil, Venezuela, Chile, other places, but I, I hadn't read anything that was set in Bolivia or La Paz. And I started looking around for novels about it, and there were none. There were some memoirs, which I read. There's a beautiful memoir called Hotel Bolivia, written by Leo Spitzer, and about his the first 10 years of his life, he grew up as a Jewish refugee in La Paz. Um, and it's a very, it's a beautiful memoir. And so I, I became kind of interested in what life must have been like for these people who had lost every everyone they loved, their homes, their money, their careers. They'd lost everything. And Suddenly they were in the middle of the Andes in a city that was more like a village back then um, in very thin air and in a culture they didn't understand, in language they didn't understand. Um, how did they cope? How did they find resilience? How did they find a way to live their lives under these circumstances? And very again, very early on in our posting, I met a man whose parents fled Poland, but it was a part of Poland that then became part of Ukraine, then part of the USSR, and then part of Poland again. Um, but his parents spoke Polish. They fled after the war, after they their two-year-old and their parents were murdered by the Germans and the Ukrainians. And they ended up in Bolivia, and my friend John was born right after they landed in La Paz. And he started telling me his family story, which interested me. And then he introduced me to other survivors. 
most significant um, was for the purposes of the book was a man named Guillermo Wiener who left Vienna at the age of eight with his parents to flee to Bolivia. And he grew up learning Spanish from his landlady's children and eventually built an incredible career. He was obsessed with movies and he, on his ship over from Europe, he had climbed up into the first class deck so he could sneak into the movies. Um, and once he grew up, he ended up owning three cinemas in La Paz and becoming the head of the Cinematography Association and just had this incredible life and uh, came to consider himself fully Bolivian. At one point, Austria invited him back kind of as an apology for murdering all your people. And he refused and said, you know, nothing on earth would ever induce him to go back to Austria. He is fully Bolivian now. And there were a lot of details he told me about his life that really helped inspire my story. My book, Exile Music, is a novel. It is fictional. But my hope in writing it was that anyone who'd actually lived through that experience, those survivors who are still alive, would recognize the context. And so my family that I, my fictional family, they, the father plays viola with the Vienna Philharmonic. The mother's an opera singer. The daughter grows up around music. She's around 11 when they flee Vienna to come to Bolivia. The father ends up, he starts out by teaching music to support his family. Orly, the daughter, learns Spanish from her landlady's son, like um, Guillermo did, and they become friends. He, he, you know, helps introduce her to the culture and she tells him a bit about their, his, her experience and, and they, they form a friendship. And the mother, on the other hand, she can't recover. She's left a son behind in Europe. She can no longer sing. She can no longer bring herself to sing because the grief is too much for her. And so the music is music is the coping mechanism for these people for for orally and for her father it is how they connect their past to their present it is how they kind of build a bridge to their future and what they cling to when they have nothing else but the mother has lost music and so she ends up spiraling into a kind of of darkness i don't want to give away what happens but um she makes some perhaps terrible choices that endanger her family. And I won't tell you what happens to her in the end, but um, that part of the story was inspired by something that my friend John, uh, whose parents were the, the Polish survivors, um, is something he told me uh, about running into Klaus Barbie, the butcher of Lyon, who murdered thousands and thousands of Jewish people and many children among them the 44 children uh, who were at a safe house in a part of France called Isieux. I might be pronouncing that wrong. Um, but these 44 children were all murdered in, in death camps. And Barbie was responsible. And these Jewish refugees who had traveled so far and thought they had finally found some kind of refuge would find themselves running into him on the street. And I thought, that must be horrifying in all kinds of new ways. And um, of course, that also interested me narratively as a writer. And I think, you know, I often write about people who do things that I wish I could do. And I, I wish I, I were musical. I wish I could play an instrument or compose music, but I can't. But I am a 
not half bad writers. So I write about musicians and research musicians to make sure I get the facts right and have musicians read my work to make sure I haven't made any stupid errors, which I always do in my early drafts and they correct me lots. And But I'm lucky that for me, I guess for me, writing is what music is to my character. Writing is, it's how I cope with everything. It's therapy in a way. And there's even been studies that have found that expressive writing can help people cope with trauma. I certainly am not sure, you know, that is that has been my rope that I that I pull on <laughs> to get me through the days between countries, things like that. Um, so um, but anyways, uh, so so exile music is is about that family of refugees and how they end up building their lives, and also a lot about how art can help us survive and help us thrive, and give us and help us create meaning in our lives. Well, give out your contact information, your website, social media links, where people can purchase your book, and tell us what's coming up next for Jennifer Style. Sure. My website is jenniferstyle.net. So it's Jennifer, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R-S-T-E-I-L.net. Um, and you can reach me there. You can find my books anywhere books are sold. Um, bookshop.org is a great place to look for it. You can find it in all the, the big places. Um, but I highly recommend going to your local independent bookstore. I love to support independent bookstores. There are so many of them um that that need support so uh but you can find uh my my books anywhere that books are sold my social media so i'm on twitter at jfstyle7 and you can just search for my name on facebook jennifer style again s-t-e-i-l uh kind of a strange spelling and I'm also on Instagram, so you can look for me there, Jennifer F. Style on Instagram. And next, so I've just finished a new book, which is also set in South America, but is about an underground community. Um, a, a lot of literature um, has been written about undergrounds that are largely male underworlds, male undergrounds with male gatekeepers run by men, inhabited by men um, with a lot of violence. And I thought, what would an underground look like if it were women what if it were queer women um and so this new book is about a community of queer women who end up underground not by choice but because their families have thrown them out as a result of their sexuality and so it's it's kind of what happens how this community forms and and how they try to create change in their community. So it's set in a South American country where it's just not acceptable to be queer. Um, it is legal, but not acceptable and it can still get you murdered. So it's kind of how my, my characters cope with that. So th that's been pretty interesting to write. So I've just finished that and I'm working on a new book that will be set here in Uzbekistan. You got any final thoughts before we close it out? I guess I do have a final word of advice for anyone who might be trying to write something or might be dealing with rejections in any career. Um, just kind of rejections as a, as a way of moving forward is when I was an actor, I read a book by Michael Shirtliff called Audition that said, you are going to get 50 no's for every yes. Um, so well, you just need to go out there thinking, I need to collect my 50 no's. So every time you get a rejection, you're like, okay, go, that's one down. 
I got to get 49 more to get to the acceptance. And um, that's helped me a lot. And it, and I think it might be helpful to writers who might be just starting out to know that even the most experienced writers get rejected because writing is a very subjective process and every editor of every journal has their own tastes. And so your piece might be rejected somewhere, accepted someplace else, but just a journalism teacher of mine once said, treat the word no as hello. It is a starting place. So I guess that those are also words that have helped me throughout my career. Ladies and gentlemen, jenniferstyle.net. Please be sure to follow, rate, review, share this episode to as many people as possible after you listen. Also, Android users, go to the Google Play Store, download the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Curtis. It's been a real pleasure. As many people as possible after you listen. Also, Android users, go to the Google Play Store, download the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Curtis. It's been a real pleasure. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream.